Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, GM at CMA's Colonial Honda. It's no secret that we are in uncharted waters, but that doesn't mean we should be afraid because we are doing everything we can to keep our dealership clean and offering delivery services to minimize exposure. We've also opened a helpline for assistance of any kind, including grocery or medication pickup. Please call our CMA helpline at 434-220-8885. Visit cmascolonialhonda.com to learn more. CMA's Colonial Honda, moving lives forward. Coastal Carolina University offers you the academic experiences you need to succeed after college. From marine science to computer science, from theater to music technology, from hospitality management to health administration, there is a place for you at Coastal Carolina University. With inspired learning opportunities in the classroom, in the field, online, and around the world, Coastal Carolina offers the opportunities to support and empower your success. Visit coastal.edu to learn more. Hear ye, hear ye. It's time for the Sports King Show, live on Sports 1061. The show with scores, interviews, the hottest topics, and the biggest sports stories of the day. It's the show where you'll hear from the players that make the plays, as well as the key coaches and personnel who make it happen. All of this and live phone calls from you, the Sports King Nation. Now, direct from his castle, located in an undisclosed location in the capital city of Richmond, Virginia, let's welcome to the throne, His Highness, Jamie King, the Sports King, on Sports 106.1. And good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Sports King. We want to thank you so much, Facebook Live as well as Sports 106.1. Boy, they're already chiming in from around the country. London, England, hello. North Carolina, hello. Gulfport, Mississippi, hello. Sacramento, California, thank you. We can't do it without you. We can't do it without our sponsors and our outstanding guests. Want to give you some of the lineup we have on the Sports King Show starting off today. Mike Neville of MHN Productions, longtime broadcaster. He's going to give his unique take on sports near and far. And the 11 o'clock hour coming up a little bit later, Frank Herzog, the longtime excellent voice of the Washington Redskins, who always said, touchdown, Washington Redskins. I can't do it like he could. Uh, of course, teamed with Sonny and Sam. And what an amazing, amazing uh, threesome they were for so many years. We're going to talk about what's happening in his life now and uh, look back at the Redskins' heyday with Sonny, Sam, and Frank. That's coming up at 11 o'clock. So many people have been asking about the guest lineup, what we have going. Of course, this is an abbreviated week. We're off Friday. We're off Monday for the Memorial Day holiday. Uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, scheduled so far, I don't want to brag about this. Well, let me brag about it anyway. Punter Mike Bragg, number four, uh, of course, from the Richmond area, is coming on the show. Uh, so we've got him booked tomorrow and more to come on uh, Thursday's edition of the show so far from the Sports Junkies. You know him as Lurch, Jason Bishop, and our number one, our two, we turn to the 1969 NFL MVP, Roman Gabriel. So there you go. Uh, many of you have been expecting Larry Brown. There was a scheduling conflict. So Larry Brown, we were hoping to have on tomorrow, but Larry will be on next Wednesday. So mark that down. Many of you have been asking me about the former Redskin, great number 43. So it'll be Larry Brown Next Wednesday, not this Wednesday, so make that programming note. Uh, many of you have been wanting to know and hear from the great Redskin Larry Brown. And many people uh, may or may not know the number 43 of Larry Brown has never been officially retired, but it's never been worn again. So basically, 
unofficially retired uh, in so many ways, Larry Brown. Want to turn our attention now to a longtime friend, broadcasting excellence himself, a guy that owns MHN Productions and is all over sports, both near and far. We welcome him back to the Sports King Show. Mike Neville joins us. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Sports King. How are you? Man, I'm doing well, doing well. Not so well. Your favorite team, the Buffalo Bills, uh, in a rest made uh, Ed Oliver. Uh, Mike, every time I turn around now with the NFL, I don't know if I'm watching your favorite crime show or the NFL because it seems any more that all they're talking about is arrest after arrest after arrest. I mean, this trend is more than troubling. And for your Buffalo Bills and head coach McDermott, I know these guys are very upset about this. It's a situation that's Seems like it's permeating through the league and causing all kinds of problems within different uh, teams right now. Your take on this run on uh, lawlessness? Well, with regard to uh, Ed Oliver, uh, Sean McDermott, very uh, he's a very high-character guy, and uh, this is uh, something that he's going to have to deal with. Be interested to see how he reacts, uh, how the league reacts. Uh, my understanding is under the new CBA agreement that uh, it's a little bit harsher penalties now uh, with regard to when you get in trouble. So I would expect a suspension for Oliver. And uh, whether he's guilty or innocent, you know, the courts will have to play it out. But uh, I would expect a suspension. And I know Coach McDermott and uh, General Manager Brandon Bean are not happy about this situation. And with regard to the other incidents, uh, it's uh, it just boggles my mind, Jamie. These guys, uh, I don't know if they have too much time on their hand or whatever, but always uh, seems like guns are involved, and it's just uh, – just crazy. I just don't understand why they have to do this. And um, I'd like to say, you know, we're talking about young guys. And in Oliver's case, uh, you know, he'd be entering his second season as an NFL player. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's being young and, you know, not used to having that kind of money and that kind of freedom and so forth. I don't know. But uh, I do know uh, I was listening to Steve Tasker the other day on uh, – a station out of Buffalo, and uh, he was saying maybe if uh, the OTAs and the mini camps were in progress, and then Oliver was up in Buffalo hanging around uh, the veteran players and so forth, maybe this wouldn't happen. But that's no excuse. I mean, it's just uh, incredible that this is happening. And uh, I would not want to be the commissioner of any sports league because it seems like these guys, as you mentioned, uh, are more and more we're seeing more of the police blotter uh, blogs and blotters and so forth. And uh, you know, just wait for them to appear on live PD or something, but it's, it's, it's not good for the league. And it's certainly, you know, I, I don't have an explanation as why why these guys do it. Mike, I've been getting uh, calls and texts, people asking my take on this situation with, uh, of course, NFL players, DeAndre Baker, Quentin Dunbar, former Redskin now in Seattle. It's their problem now, Mike. Uh, thank goodness for that from a Redskin perspective, but they've been released on bond following alleged armed robbery accusations. Allegedly, Mike, they go to a cookout. They're having a good time the day before lose 70 grand in a high stakes game. But then the following day, coming back again to the same cookout atmosphere, two NFL players, which are easily identified, decide after losing more money that, hey, might be a good play to go ahead and rob the folks there, take the 7000 in cash, all the jewelries, watches, and everything else you have, and then, then make a getaway. Maybe not so clean a getaway, Mike, as they are both arrested and facing some serious charges, one with eight counts, one with four counts. But both said, and their attorneys as well, Mike, it wasn't them, Mike. It was a case of mistaken right, identity, right. so it could have happened to anybody. Your take on this bizarre deal. 
Yeah, you know, these these guys, uh, these athletes are coddled from, you know, their days in high school all the way through college and so forth. They can afford the best lawyers and so forth, so naturally they're going to say, oh, wasn't me, uh, and, uh, you know, more than likely uh, get off. Now, this case here, uh, lots of witnesses and so forth, so I'm not sure that's going to fly, but again, why, why do it? I mean, these guys don't need the jewelry. You wouldn't think anyways. I mean, unless they're broke, which is a possibility as well, but you know, why, well, Mike, why, you're why looking at I mean, you, you're looking at Baker as a top pick in the 2019 draft. He's got, uh, I mean, into the high millions. And you know, Dunbar's made his money here, but Ron Rivera moved right. on from him. Maybe he knew something. There was an attitude issue, moved him off, jettisoned him to Seattle. Issues there now. They've got to deal with that. And of course, the Redskins uh, have their own issues going on right now. Their receiver just arrested as well. So there are all kinds of teams suffering from this. And as you said, now without them being within the confines of the building and the practice bubble, if you will, being monitored and watched, you now have a situation where guys are running rogue, having all kinds of problems. And look at Plexico Burris from years ago, Mike. He shot himself. Can't make this up. In a bar in New York, he ended up doing some hard time for having a gun in an occupied dwelling. That was shooting himself. He goes to jail. These two, allegedly, one of them uh, was said to have said, hey, if you get up, I'm going to shoot you. So the threat was there, implied or otherwise. But now, Mike, this is not a run-of-the-mill. And as I look back, I was talking to somebody this morning early about, like, Billy Kilmer, and he said, hey, you know, Billy and those guys like to drink. And, of course, maybe they get pulled over and they were drinking and they get slapped on the wrist. Those were infractions of the day, and I'm not demeaning, uh, diminishing, rather, the uh, drinking aspect. That's serious as well. But – it seemed uh, in so many ways a little more harmless back in the day. They had certain things they did, missing curfews, things like that. But, man, these guys are elevating to whole new levels of crime. And I think for whatever reason, the commissioner's got to get a hold of this because these players are falling by the wayside left and right and it's affecting teams in big ways. And, Jamie, the other, the other thing is why, why do it nowadays where there's cameras all around, there's cell phone cameras and so forth, uh, you know, police are wearing body cameras, uh, I mean, with social media. It just doesn't make any sense to do it nowadays. Uh, you know, like you say, back in the day with Billy Kilmer and those guys, uh, there wasn't the social media aspect of it. And uh, But, like I say, to do it nowadays with uh, – and to say stuff that they say, you know, some, some things come out, um, there's microphones all over the place and so forth. It just boggles my mind as they continue to uh, run rampant with uh, these situations. And like you say, Commissioner Goodell's got to do something about it. Now, here's my other question to you. As a fan, and I've heard both sides. Some people say, well, if these guys get in trouble like this, cut them right away. And, uh, you know, in the case of the Bills, you're talking about a guy that was a top 10 pick uh, two years ago. And that would be a very big loss if they do, in fact, do it. But that would certainly be one way of sending a message. Do you think anything like that could happen uh, with regard to maybe Ed Oliver or somebody that's a high draft pick? Well, Mike, that's a great question. You know, as a former coach, you know, if I was at that level, I would look at it and say, you know, mitigate the loss and say, hey, what can we do? What should we do? Because we keep a guy like this around and don't come down hard on him. They're basically going to say, hey, uh, these guys here can get away with whatever they want. And if you don't have control within the building, you slowly lose control. And then it causes a myriad of problems. So uh, great question. But, you know, I would say to Oliver this, if I'm coaching him, I bring him in and say, look, man, here's the deal. I'm supporting you. I'm not getting rid of you. But I'm going to say this to you once and for all. If you run a foul again. 
you know, you're getting one shot with me, one opportunity, because I believe in second chances, but I'm not going to certain things you have to look at in different aspects. But Ed Oliver's situation, I'd say, look, uh, as long as you and I are on the same page, and I look you dead in the eye and say, if this happens, anything like this happens, you run a foul, you do anything wrong, are we under uh, the same? Uh, are we on the same page in regards to you understand you won't be here? And if he says, yeah, coach, I got you. And I'm saying, you better get me because here's the deal. You won't be here anymore. So in this case, I mean, you got a high round pick. It doesn't matter the pick to me, Mike, as much as the player. Do I think he's a redeemable guy or do I think he's a cancer that's going to continue to run afoul of the law and be a renegade? I don't want renegades. I want guys that are going to make plays and be good community members. Now, if he can't do that, tell me now. And we have to cut our losses. As much as I hate to lose in that, Oliver, if he can't do this and he's had some issues in the past, you have to cut your losses. But I think uh, what they'll do there, obviously, if so much invested, is sit him down. And I don't think McDermott's a guy that he's going to tell it to him straight and say, man, you got to get this straight or you're going to have to be gone. Yeah, McDermott's not going to. He's going to give him a second chance, like like you said. He's going to sit him down. I'm kind of surprised this happened at Oliver because, like I say, he was around the great Lorenzo Alexander in his rookie year, and of course before that, uh, also Kyle Williams, who of course is one of my favorite players uh, in Bill's history, uh, and a tremendous leader. He came into training camp and was working with Ed and uh, and was talking to him. So I'm kind of surprised that uh, this happened, uh, you know, it, but it, it did. And uh, but I like I say I'm kind of surprised with the leadership that the Bills had. But like I say, I do believe McDermott will sit him down and say, like you said. Probably say you're going to get another chance, but if you dress up again, we can't have it. You're going to be gone. But uh, and McDermott is pretty uh, straightforward with his players. He's a players' coach, and he does believe in uh, listening to them and uh, you know guiding them. So, uh, like I say, he will probably take that avenue. But again, it's uh, kind of a fifty-fifty split as far as the Buffalo fans go. Some of them want him to be cut right away. Others say give him a second chance, and I think he will be given a second chance. But like you say. Uh, in this day and age, boy, these coaches and management and uh, commissioners of sports, it, it's a real uh, tussle to uh, try to keep everybody straight with all the free time they have and all the money they've got and so forth. And, of course, uh, you know, getting around uh, the guys that they grew up with and so forth. So uh, it, it's, it's tough, tough on everybody. Special guest Mike Neville on Sports King Show, watching on Facebook Live, listening to Sports 1061. We continue our discussion about the NFL, what's going on here. And, Mike, you nailed it, uh, you know, in a strong capsule there. I'm looking at it from a coaching standpoint, and I say to myself, to my players, I'm going to say, look, guys, from the day one, I'm not Dr. Phil. I don't have time to play Dr. Phil. We have to coach and win football <laughs> games. We have to do it the right way. And guys like uh, Odell Beckham, great player, but when I look at him back there smashing nets and uh, causing problems and yelling at assistant coaches because he's not getting the ball, whoever the player is, I have to take him aside and say, look, man, this is a team sport. This isn't tennis. This isn't golf. But if you can't be part of our winning and it's all about you, and I know – Players of today, you know, let's face it, it's more of a you know social media-driven society. Back in the day when you had the, the Monks, Clark, and Sanders, those guys were more just, hey, it's all about the team. Guys, and I'm not saying all, but a lot of them are more of, hey, you know, i got to put the numbers up, and I want to get the top dollar. And I understand that to a degree, but the me-first mentality drives me crazy, and I don't have time to play psychologists on the sideline and turn around and worry about my receiver or running back or whoever it may be. Can they do what we need to do to win ball games? That's got to be number one, but uh, it, it just seems like it's dragged on. Anyway, I'm going to turn my attention to the uh, Chargers, the Los Angeles Chargers, and Cam Newton. Of course, I have gone on record saying I'd love to see him in D.C. 
Uh, it looked like it would be Los Angeles as a landing uh, destination for Cam Newton, but head coach Anthony Lynn said the team considered signing Cam Newton, but decided ultimately to go in another direction. So now when you have Cam Newton, some say healthy, some say not so healthy. Of course, coming off this shoulder injury, the shoulder surgery, the Liz Frank aspect with his foot, uh, do you see Washington getting a late run at him, maybe signing him, or do you think he goes elsewhere? What's your take on Cam Newton? Well, I really thought the uh, Chargers was going to be his uh, landing spot, but uh, like you said, Anthony Lynn shot that idea down yesterday in an interview. Like you said, the Chargers did consider it, but they're going to go with Tyrod Taylor and the, and the rookie that they drafted in Herbert, so uh, looks like that's their way to go. I don't believe the Redskins are going to go after Cam Newton. I believe that uh, they're going to go with uh, Kyle Allen and, and Dwayne Haskins as their uh, quarterbacks right now. And, uh, you know, I still... New England is out there. They've said, you know, publicly that Jared Stidham is their man, but I still think maybe Cam Newton, that might be where he falls, is with New England. Now, if he doesn't go with New England, Jamie, I'm not sure he's going to be picked up by anybody, which would be a, you know, an unbelievable situation because the guy certainly is talented, but I think he's a little bit of a knucklehead sometimes, but uh, I think he, you know, if he, if he is healthy, he is a dynamic football player, but I still think New England is in the picture, but again, if he doesn't land there, I mean, as far as a starting job, I don't. There's nowhere he's going to go. I don't think to start. Uh, he might go somewhere as a backup, but I'm I'm kind of shocked that he is still out there uh, on the market. I agree, uh, Cam Newton. When he's right, since college, some people may have different thoughts on him. He is an opposing figure. He's a guy that can stretch the field with his legs, with his arm. When he's on and into it, the only problem, and I would sit down with him as a coach and I'd look at him and say, are you fully engaged? Because if you're all in and your cam is right 100% physically, you got a guy that could make plays. He took him to a Super Bowl, so you know what he's capable of. Sometimes I just get the feeling and looking at his body language, kind of like Jake Cutler, that eh, I don't know if I'm really into it as much. I want a guy fully engaged, and that's the that's the only rub for me with Cam Newton, so we're going to have to follow that story. I do want to ask you, Mike, about the Rooney rule, the situation, of course, hiring minorities. Uh, now it's mandated. Teams must now conduct interviews with at least two external minority candidates for any head coaching vacancy and one external minority candidate for coordinator positions. Mike, what's your take? Because – I've always felt you should hire the best person uh, regardless of skin color. And I know right now it's, it's just an absolute sham in terms of the lack of minority hirings for all the guys out there that are so talented that are on the sidelines. You look at the Mike Singletary of the world, a good friend of mine, and I shake my head when I look at some of the coaches being hired. And you got a guy like Singletary had a good run. It wasn't spectacular in terms of overall win-loss, but he wasn't anywhere near some of these guys that are getting second, third, and fourth chances. Your take on this in terms of why the disparity is such that it doesn't seem like it's something they should just do uh, as a rule versus having to be almost forced into it. Well, look, we, we know racism exists in the world, and uh, is that's one thing Goodell and company have to figure out. Is the reason that, that there's been uh, a limited amount of minorities hired in these general manager and coaching businesses because of racism, or is it because they're just they just don't feel like they're qualified enough, or that they they don't interview well? So there's you know you have to get through that. As far as what uh, their proposal is, I just don't think. I think that's going to create a problem because if you hire a coach or a general manager, I would think the players and maybe some management people would say, well, did he get the job just so we could move up in the draft or did he get the job on his qualifications? And that's an extra burden you don't want to put on the uh, the coach or the GM 
or the organization for that matter. So uh, from that, I applaud the NFL for trying to tackle this situation. But I'm with you. I've always been an advocate of you hire the best person available. And again, this may be a situation where the uh, the owners that have interviewed uh, in the past say, well, you know, just they just don't interview well. You know, uh, there was questions about Bud Foster at Virginia Tech, why he didn't move on to a head coaching job. Rumors were swirling that he just didn't interview well, and that does happen. Uh, you don't, you know, some candidates may not go in with confidence in an interview situation, in an interview setting. Uh, we just don't know. But um, I applaud the NFL for tackling this situation, but I just don't think this is the proper way of doing it because, like I said, if they do hire a GM or a, or a coach, it's got to be in the back of the mind of the players. Did they, did they do this just so they could move up in the draft, or did they actually get a qualified candidate. So that, that, that would be the cloud that, in my opinion, that would be hanging over the organizations. You know what? It's uh, funny because you look at a guy like a Marvin Lewis. Now, I always liked Marvin Lewis from a personal standpoint. The guy is a great guy. Players love him. Uh, just a very smart guy all in all. But Marvin Lewis, when you look at his record, 131, 122, and 3, but the rub for me with Marvin Lewis, 0-7 in the postseason, this guy was there for so many years in Cincinnati, and it just seemed like it never got over the hump, and he continued to get chance after chance after chance. So Cincinnati, you give them kudos for sticking with a guy, a minority that they felt, hey, this guy could take us there eventually. It never happened. But then you have others that just can't get a break. I mean, Eric Bieniemy of one, of course, Kansas City, he looks to be the next head coach and waiting, but – it's just something, as you said, I'm concerned now that folks are going to say, hey, man, we could get a higher draft pick if we can hire a minority versus going with the best talented guy. And there's so many guys past and present that are out there that they need to do this in a different way. Mike, for me, it's about let's look at the, you know, whether minority, regular coach out there, whoever, the you know, whether it would be somebody of Chinese descent or, or Spanish descent or African, whoever it is, let's get the best guys in here and let's have more of a committee structure to it to where it's done uh, across the board in a more major setting versus just, hey, hey, we can get a higher draft pick. And it just seems like it's a pressure deal that I don't think it's a fair thing in terms of what they should be doing. Your take. And the other thing about that, uh, Jamie, is I, I like the uh, reaction from Lewis Riddick and even Stephen A. Smith. They have come out and said it's really uh, kind of insulting to uh, for this kind of uh, proposal because, uh, you know, they think it's just uh, demeaning the African-American that would uh, get the job, or at least, you know, uh, they understand what the NFL is trying to do. But I do applaud uh, Lewis Riddick and uh, Stephen A. Smith for coming out and uh, saying it's really, you know, this kind of insulting to African-Americans, and I thought that was a very good stand. But, uh, yeah, like I say, you know, it's, it's about the best qualified. You're, you're talking about a, a billion-dollar business. You're talking about owning a football team and uh, a sports pro, uh, sports team. Uh, you want results, and those results mean wins and losses. And uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, like I say, you got to hire the best guy. And there's just, there's just a lot of things probably surrounding why uh, minorities have not been uh, put in those positions, but you know, you look at the Baltimore Ravens when they had Ozzie Newsom, and what a great job he did with that organization, and others. You know, Mike Tomlin at Pittsburgh, uh, the Steelers uh, are perennial playoff contenders. Last year, even losing Ben Roethlisberger, Tomlin still had the uh, team vying for a playoff spot late in the season. So, I mean, there certainly are qualified candidates out there. It's just a matter: why is it is it a racism issue? 
Is it just an issue, like I said before, where these guys don't interview well? What is the, they got to find out what is holding up the uh, hiring of minorities. But I just don't agree with this idea that let, let's entice organizations with uh, being able to improve their draft position. I just, I just don't agree with that. I agree a thousand percent. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Mike Neville, outstanding broadcaster and also owner of MHN uh, Productions. Of course, Mike Neville is who we thought he was. In the words of Dennis <laughs> Green. Anyway, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to find out Mike's thoughts on Darlington, the return of NASCAR, and how that helped heal America. Why can't Major League Baseball follow suit? We'll find out what Mike thinks and more as the Sports King rolls on Tuesday morning. Hi, this is Mark Mosley of the Washington Redskins, NFL MVP in 1982. You're listening to my friend Jamie King, the Sports King on Sports 106.1. Hi, sports fans. It's the Sports King for the Podiatry Center of renowned foot doctor, Dr. Paul Ross. Dr. Ross is an expert who develops individual game plans for the sole purpose of getting his patients back to 100% as quickly as possible. In my case, I wore soft casts, hard casts. I was in pain and I saw no relief. That is, until Dr. Ross came to the rescue. He restored my foot to the way it was originally, and he gave me the quality of life I so desperately wanted to return to. He can do the same for you. He has state-of-the-art techniques and strategies to ensure your pain and issues become a thing of the past. If you've tried the rest, do yourself a favor and now try the best. Call today. Two offices to serve you, Bethesda, Maryland, and Springfield, Virginia. That's the podiatry center of Dr. Paul Ross. For more information, go to paulrossdpm.com. That's paulrossdpm.com. You're listening to a man whose yoga instructor asked him how flexible he was, and he replied that he couldn't do Tuesdays. It's the Sports King on Sports 1061. Welcome you back. Tuesday edition of the Sports King, Sports 106.1. Also, Facebook Live. We're joined by our great friend Mike Neville, longtime broadcaster, owner of MHM Productions. And we continue our discussion, turning our attention to NASCAR, Mike. Of course, NASCAR, in many ways, uh, trying to save sports for America. Give us something to cheer about. They did this past weekend, of course, in Darlington, as Ben called it, the track too tough to tame, or... He gave me the new nickname that I didn't know about, the Lady in Black. Ben passing the knowledge on, of course, of Darlington. He is a big race aficionado. Mike, your your thought, uh, as Ben just let me know, uh, 6.3 million people watched that race, and it was very, very well received from a rating standpoint. Very eerie from a fan standpoint watching. Now, on the track, it was great. The racing, I felt, was like a normal race in many ways, but when you looked up, and saw no fans in the stands. Your take on this, but the fact that NASCAR, I thought, really got it right in terms of their presentation. They worked hard to pull it off. What was your take after watching this race? Well, NASCAR was put in the uh, position of being the uh, first major sport, as you mentioned, to uh, get back at it. And uh, there were the other leagues, the NBA, the NFL, and uh, Major League Baseball were all watching uh, and they they talked to the uh, people of NASCAR saying, you know, we wish you luck and hope this goes off without a hitch. And it pretty much did. Uh, Kevin Harvick, of course, winning. Uh, and afterwards, when he got out of the car, he uh, 
that he knew that there would be no fans. He goes, but boy, it's awful silent right now And uh, for his post-race interview. But, uh, yeah, I thought it went off very well. I thought Darlington was a great place to uh, start the um, series back up, uh, an old track uh, that is uh, kind of different. It's an egg-shaped track. It's very tough to uh, drive. It's very hard on the tires. And I thought it was a, the race was uh, well done. And uh, like I say, I thought Fox did a great job of uh, getting it technically right. And, uh, again, it was great to see. And uh, I knew that they, the viewership would probably be the best it's been for NASCAR in years. And uh, I applaud them. And, it felt good to watch something live and uh, seemed like there was a little bit of normalcy back in uh, life on a Sunday afternoon. So I was very pleased that everything went out without a hitch. And uh, so hopefully this is a step in the right direction. We're starting to see now California is kind of relaxing their stance. It looks like there, there might be some sports practices, or at least they're opening up the idea to having sports practices. Governor Cuomo in New York also saying that he's welcoming major league uh, sports or major sports teams to uh, also get back at it. So that's a couple of great signs in two of the toughest areas hit by the COVID-19. So uh, all in all, I think it was a a great start, and let's hope the other leagues can uh, find a way to get it going as well. You know, NASCAR President Steve Phelps estimated there were 900 people on the property during the course of the race. Uh, And as you said, Kevin Harvick, when he wins a race, looks around, he looked very lonely there. But, of course, uh, it was definitely a new normal. But when you look at NASCAR, I applaud them. And I've gone on record, Mike, you're a much bigger NASCAR fan, as has Ben Maitland, my producer, than I am. But I am becoming a bigger one because of the fact that these guys took uh, the the uh, the bull by the horns and basically said, we're going to do something for America. And I never heard one person complain or say, hey, I'm not getting enough money or why should I be doing this with no fans versus Major League Baseball. Blake Snell, of course, the pitcher for Tampa Bay, is taking a lot of heat by coming out and saying, hey, I'm worth $50 million. I deserve every penny. I'm not pitching unless I get that because I'm putting myself at risk. These guys all put themselves at risk. And then is it just the money grab, Mike, on the baseball side because these guys making so much money uh, are saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to do it unless I get total control money-wise, no split of uh, profit sharing versus uh, NASCAR says, hey, we want to give America something to cheer about. This is really and could leave a black eye on baseball if they don't change your stance, your take. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and one thing about NASCAR, I mean, it really is an American sport, and they, uh, they're they proud to wave the flag. And, uh, you know, and like I said, I'm, pro- I'm glad that they were the uh, sport to get things rolling again. But as far as baseball goes, I don't understand this uh, with people losing their jobs and unemployment rising and uh, so forth. Uh, they can't take a little bit of a pay cut. And the revenue is what's got me kind of – I mean, you're talking about a 50-50 split, and I believe it's just for this season. Now, obviously, it's not going to be as high as, you know, if you have a full season, but still – what other business do you know uh, that says, okay, I'm making, you know, I'm going to give you half of the uh, profits. I mean, to me, and I know it's just a, a shortened season, but still, I don't understand why they're balking at that. Uh, but as far as uh, Snell and these guys, uh, you, you know, come on, let's, uh, you know, how much do you really love the game? And you, you're getting paid to play a game. Okay, I mean, you're not, you know, it's not like you're asked to be a brain surgeon. You're asked to play a game, a fun game that you and I grew up with playing and had a lot of fun at, and uh, I can guarantee you, if we were getting $7 million a year, I think we could say, okay, I can do it for a million this year. I mean, you know, to play a game. So, uh, I mean, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You can slum along for a million. Uh, Mike, uh, we want to talk in our final moments with you. The Last Dance, of course, couldn't take my eyes off it. The 10-part documentary series done by 
Uh, of course, director Jason Heher, who did an amazing job. Uh, many people picking at him, saying, hey, too much focus on Jordan and so forth. But, you know, that's kind of the heartbeat of the whole deal. So I like the right. way he, he went about it, the direction he went about it. But to see Jordan, who I was fortunate to interview once, uh, to see him behind the scenes in the competitive drive. And I've gone on record saying that of every athlete, I've interviewed the greatest of the great. I've been very fortunate to do that. But the one thing to set this guy apart from every other, I felt, was that inner will to win. And what he did with that Bulls team was he was able to get those around him to buy into that and go along the same path that he went, and he raised their games up. Now, he took some criticism, and he was worried about how he'd be perceived in terms of getting in the faces of Scotty Burrell, you know, Will Perdue, Luke Longley, those guys, by demanding excellence. Do you find any fault with that, Mike? I mean, it seems like he took a little bit of a beating in the court of public opinion by the way he approached it, but you can't argue with the results, and I wouldn't change a thing. If I'm a Bulls fan, which I was, you know, was for him, but not growing up a Bulls fan, I would love the guy because of the fact that he had that extra gear and that will to win that no other athlete, in my opinion, had to the level he did. Well, most of your superstars, Jamie, are not, uh, you know, that's the way they are. That's why they are the, the, uh, the cream of the crop at the top of the game. They are, uh, competitive. They are, they, they practice the longest and, uh, stay after practice and so forth. And, you know, there's the, the will to win. I mean, uh, you look at Magic Johnson back in the, he got Paul Westfall fired, uh, as a coach of the Lakers because he just didn't, you know, I mean, that's how much power he had. But again, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, teammates. And remember Michael Jordan, and to much to his credit, when you think back to the titles, remember John Paxson hit that game-winning shot against Phoenix. Steve Kerr hit a, a big shot uh, in that championship series uh, for the uh, for the Bulls against Utah. So, I mean, he did rely on his teammates, and uh, but it took a while for him to trust him. And Phil Jackson, uh, you know, was kind of telling him, hey, you got to trust your teammates, and he did. But as far as his competitiveness and, uh, you know, making them sweat a little bit extra in practice and getting in their face, it made them better players, I believe. And, uh, you know, and they all said, you know, he was a pain in the butt, uh, but they also respected the heck out of him because uh, he came through for them. Uh, he came through, the team came through by winning all those titles. So, I mean, I'm not surprised because, like I say, most sports, uh, your superstars, and even, you know, on the coaching ranks, most of your successful coaches are considered to be, you know, disciplinarians and not well-liked. But the uh, bottom line is they were winners, and uh, Jordan was certainly that. Your take on some of the comments from some of the guys he went up against, it seemed like just the littlest slight against Jordan was all he needed to use to his advantage, of course, Reggie Miller talked about early on how he talked trash, he, and then he learned, he said, don't ever talk trash to black Jesus. He said, I called him uh, black Jesus for what he did on the court, and he said, I made the mistake of talking, and so many other players, uh, Byron Russell, uh, saw him uh, when he was out of his baseball during that time and basically said, hey, come on back, you know, I got something for you, more or less. And even though it was years later, he remembered the slight, and he built it in and said, you know what, I got to show this guy something. So it was those little things that he always used to his advantage. Just eat. And sometimes things weren't even said he used to his advantage. But it was so unique to see the inner workings of one, if not the greatest, and I believe the greatest player of all time. Well, when you, uh, you, you factor in an 82-game uh, NBA schedule and then you factor in the playoffs – 
you know, you got to find ways to motivate yourself. And you get on the wrong side of Michael uh, Jordan, uh, you're not going to probably get back on the good side of Michael Jordan. And uh, those were his ways of motivating himself, and obviously it paid off. Uh, the Russell thing is uh, pretty amazing. I mean, he was, you know, Jordan's out of baseball, and he goes, why'd you quit, man? He goes, I, I, could, I could hold you down or whatever. And uh, Jordan uh, kept that in the back of his mind until it was time to play the Jazz in the uh, in the uh, title game, you know, in the title series, and he was able to come through. But uh, that's the way Michael was. He, uh, like I say, but if you got on the wrong side of him, you had to work your way back to get on the good side. And uh, But, hey, whatever it takes to get you motivated and get you uh, – willing to uh, win a title, that's what you do. Well, I'll tell you what, what I learned from watching Larry Bird, one of our favorites, Mike, and of course you being a Celtic fan, was the game where uh, there was a last-second shot hit by Reggie Miller, but it left, I believe, 1.2 seconds on the clock, and the entire place went crazy at Market Square, and you saw a close-up of Larry Bird's face, and Mike, he didn't <laughs> change expression, and they say the reason he didn't was – He'd been down this road so many times knowing that Jordan still had a chance with 1.2 seconds. There was not an ounce of celebration. Some coaches would jump out of their skin, not Larry uh, Larry Bird. He had seen this many times before, and unfor- you know, fortunately for him that the last second shot was missed, but he wasn't celebrating before there were zeros on the clock. And that last second shot barely missed. I mean, like like Reggie Miller said, it was millimeters, you know. And he had a double pump. Uh, he had a double clutch uh, uh, on that shot. So Jordan almost pulled it off. But, uh, yeah, and then, of course, uh, Indiana forced him to a game seven. And that Indiana team, very talented. And Larry Bird, who uh, uh, only had two other assistant coaches. Nowadays, they got like six or eight. And uh, I can remember the quote uh, Bird was asked why he only had uh, he had Dick Harder and uh, Rick Carlisle as his assistants, and they said, "Why do you have only two assistant coaches?" He goes, "Why would I need any more?" He goes, "I got a defensive coach and an offensive coach." He goes, "I don't need anything else," and uh, was pretty matter of fact. And just like and Bird also said that you know three years would be it. He said, "I will not coach after three years," and he stuck to his guns. But yeah, Bird knew uh, about Jordan, obviously members of the dream team and so forth, so he knew what he was capable of and. Uh, they said that shot just missed, but uh, Indiana was uh, unfortunately uh, for Indiana fans eliminated in seven games. But boy, they put up a tussle and uh, they had a great team, but unfortunately couldn't get by uh, Michael Jordan. And there were some guys in that era: Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone. Those guys, they were just born at the <laughs> born at the wrong time because they had to play against Michael Jordan in championship series and just couldn't get it done. Uh, Mike, we got thirty seconds for our break. Just last question, real quick. There's been a poll. Uh, some people have said, uh, who's the best, Jordan or LeBron? Overwhelmingly, it's 73% Jordan. You think it's even close, Mike? And uh, when you look at the greatest, uh, it looks like a hands-down deal for Jordan. Well, I go by championships. Jordan was 6-for-6 six six and uh, didn't lose uh, championship games or championship series, so I'm going with uh, Michael. Michael is the man. He is the greatest of all time, and we agree on that. Mike, thank you so much. You stay safe, and we'll get through this, and we welcome you back anytime. Thanks for joining us this morning on Sports King. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate the time. You and Ben, be safe, man. You got it. Uh, Mike Neville, our special guest, coming up uh, momentarily. Top of the hour, Frank Herzog, the former play-by-play man for the Washington Redskins. All that and more on your way as the Sports King rolls on Tuesday morning. Hi, sports fans. This is National High School recruiting football expert Tom Lemming. You may have seen me in the movie The Blind Side. You are listening to a guy I've given the five-star rating to. It's Jamie King, the sports king on Sports 106.1.
Looking for a top-tier university that is affordable? Coastal Carolina University offers more than 100 undergraduate and graduate programs designed to help you earn your degree. Visit coastal.edu and learn more about the coastal commitment to student learning and student-led research. Coastal Carolina University is consistently ranked as a top best value university in the South. Visit coastal.edu to learn more and schedule your campus tour. Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, GM at CMA's Colonial Honda. It's no secret that we are in uncharted waters, but that doesn't mean we should be afraid because we are doing everything we can to keep our dealership clean and offering delivery services to minimize exposure. We've also opened a helpline for assistance of any kind, including grocery or medication pickup. Please call our CMA helpline at 434-220-8885. Visit cmascolonialhonda.com to learn more. CMA's Colonial Honda, moving lives forward. You're listening to the man who thinks that Velcro is nothing more than a ripoff. The Sports King on Sports 106.1. And welcome back. Tuesday edition of the Sports King. We thank you, London, England. Thank you for checking in. Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, Sacramento, California, Gulfport, Mississippi. We love you, Gulfport. Of course, Ricky Cunningham, who took me to Brett Favre's bar, The Broke Spoke. We'll never forget that trip. Way, way back in the woods in Mississippi and enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, A bar experience like none other, Brett Favre's. Want to go through, before we head to the top of the hour, Frank Herzog is going to join us. Want to remind you on the Sports King Show coming up uh, so far, confirmed guest tomorrow, Mike Bragg, the former punter for the Redskins. Of course, uh, had a lot of great years with George Allen. We'll talk to him tomorrow. Uh, scheduled on Thursday from the Junkies, Jason Bishop, known as Lurch, of course, longtime broadcaster of the Sports Junkies. And in the afternoon, of course, heading towards the afternoon, um, the last part of the show will be Roman Gabriel, Los Angeles Rams quarterback. Can't wait to catch up with him. And, uh, of course, 1969 NFL MVP Roman Gabriel. uh, Really getting some great, great guests coming in, and we appreciate all of them. I want to thank Tom Heckler uh, from Arizona, a guy that uh, is a longtime member of the Redskins uh, staff. He worked uh, in the equipment area and uh, knew a lot of players. Uh, Tom has been great in helping me and uh, offering some great advice. Uh, he was there throughout all the Redskins' heyday, and Tom Heckler, a uh, great fan of the show, has done a great job uh, for the Redskins, and we appreciate all of his help with our show as well. want to give him a big shout-out out in Arizona. So thank you, Tom, for listening, you and your wife, and uh, talk to him uh, today, as a matter of fact, and he said they were out walking at 5 a.m. He said, we got to do that here in Arizona because – of course, you can't do it after 9 or 10. The heat is just too much. So everybody out there uh, walking at 5 a.m. in Arizona just to do it in cooler temperatures. Uh, we want to run through uh, right now the top 10 players to keep your eye on in terms of the rookie class coming up uh, in the NFL. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, number 10, uh, safety Antoine Winfield, of course, uh, uh, taking the second round, 45th overall. He's a guy that is uh, going to be a big-time hitter, a versatile defender who can really uh, make plays all over the field and his hitting ability and cover ability. He's going to be a guy who's going to come through. Bruce Arians needs some help on defense, and Winfield is just what the doctor ordered for Tampa Bay. 
Uh, the number nine player that I want you to watch for the Cleveland Browns, safety Grant Delpit, the second rounder, 44th overall. A guy that could have gone in the first round, in my opinion, if he's healthy. He can be a playmaker. He is a guy that really knows his way around that secondary. So watch Delpit, of course, uh, did some great things last year. And if healthy, he's going to be a top player. Uh, Xavier McKinney, the safety for the Giants, number eight, uh, second round, 36 overall. Uh, he is a guy that is another big hitter and a guy the Giants need desperately in that secondary. So watch him from a safety position. He can cover. He can definitely cover a lot of ground with his speed, and he's a guy that can definitely hit. So you want to watch New York Giants safety, Xavier McKinney. And, of course, with DeAndre Baker's situation on that football team, they got a lot of other worries right now. Uh, the seventh player to look at, uh, Detroit Lions running back DeAndre Swift a guy that is going to really do some big things. Uh, he has all the tools, speed, shiftiness, a guy that can really contribute. Uh, I've gone on record saying I'm not a big fan of Matt Patricia. I don't think Matt Patricia, even with great talent, is going to do well. I just don't think he's the guy to lead them. I think the Lions, you know, it's one of those, eh, just can't seem to get out of their own way. Matt Patricia, just not the uh, head coach. I think he's better as a coordinator and I don't think he's going to be around very long there in Detroit. Number six, uh, Colts wide receiver Michael Pittman Jr., second round, 34th overall. Uh, he's 6'4", 223 pounds. And Chris Ballard, the GM, loved him, compares him to Vincent Jackson. And Colts uh, have Phillip Rivers now, so that could be a nice little duo. Look for Michael Pittman to have a breakout year this year. Uh, as he was taken in the second round, 34th overall. For the Ravens, a guy that uh, the rich get richer here, the 14-2 and two Ravens. You look at Baltimore Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Folks, make no mistake on this guy. He is the real deal. First round, 28th overall, he was picked. He can cover. He can hit. He is a heat-seeking missile. This guy has a lot of skills in a lot of ways. He can help you in a lot of ways. So watch the Ravens now. I'm telling you, they had the best draft to me in this recent NFL draft, and they added this guy at 28. I thought it was a steal. Patrick Queen could have gone much higher. At number four, Minnesota Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson. Uh, of course, uh, he was highly productive at LSU, 111 catches for 1,540 yards, 18 touchdowns, all from that Joe Brady offense with Joe Burrow pulling the trigger there. Uh, so you're wondering how it's going to translate with Kirk Cousins. The thing about Kirk Cousins that I've always talked about, more the dink and dunk type of passer, a guy that's going to do the 10 and 15-yard outs, not going to stretch the field. So I just wonder how Jefferson's going to fit in that offense. Kirk Cousins, to me, just is not a guy that's going to stretch the field for you. So it is what it is, but uh, J Justin Jefferson's a guy to have for. Can make big plays, run after catch ability. Justin Jefferson, Minnesota Vikings. Number three, watch this guy. He's a touchdown waiting to happen for the Raiders, Los Angeles Raiders Keep uh, Las Vegas Raiders. I keep saying Los Angeles, Las Vegas Raiders. Boy, that's going to take a while. Wide receiver Henry Ruggs III, the first round, 12th overall pick. This guy is a speedster, and they want to stretch the field. And Derek Carr, as far as you can throw it, this guy will go run it down. He has ability, and he has wiggle. He's a guy that can get open, and when he gets the ball in his hands, he's a touchdown waiting to happen. Henry Ruggs III is a guy you really keep your eye on. If you're a fantasy player, that's a guy you really want to take a look at is Henry Ruggs, a guy that can definitely make things happen. Of course, uh, you want to look at uh, another guy that uh, we will know and love, come to know and love, uh, Chase Young. Of course, uh, 
is the guy at number two. You want to watch him in terms of his ability. Uh, everybody says he could transform the league. Uh, we in Burgundy and Gold, the fans of the Burgundy and Gold, certainly hope that's going to be the fact. I mean, you're looking at a guy here, has the speed, has the quickness. He thinks he could grow another couple of inches. Don't know if that's going to happen, but I'll take Chase Young in his current form. The guy is a monster off the edge. He has moves and moves and moves. Now, here's the deal. If Chase Young comes in and does what he should do and expected to do, that should free up Ryan Kerrigan and Montez Sweat for career years because if he demands double teams, which many people think he will, it should mean big things on the other side. So watch what happens with Kerrigan this year. If he comes back off that five-sack year last year and does some great things for the Redskins because he now has a running mate that can really help. Montez Sweat also should have a big year, so watch that. And the number one player to look at, uh, per the Sports King, is my guy, number nine, Joe Burrow. I love Joe Burrow. I said it last year after week two. I predicted he'd win the Heisman, he'd win the national championship, and be the first-round pick. I said that back in week two of the college football season. I nailed it on this guy. Love Joe Burrow. Love everything about him, his makeup. Uh, you know, he's a very confident guy. He knows offense. He's a very proven guy. I think he's going to be a plug-and-play guy there in Cincinnati. He knows offensive football. And I think it's going to be a much easier transition for him than for some other guys like a Dwayne Haskins because of the ability and the amount of time he played. Joe Burrow earned his way. He earned his stripes. So it's going to be very interesting to see his development in Cincinnati. But I really feel they're going to take a big step forward this year. I'm not saying print playoff tickets in Cincinnati just yet, but I do think Joe Burrow is going to lead them to more wins, and you're going to see a lot more promise. The only problem with Joe Burrow is can the Bengals' offensive line keep him safe, keep him upright, and protect him? That's my biggest worry for him. As far as putting pieces around Joe Burrow, uh, the Bengals just have to do it. They have to get some protection and make sure you protect your investment because that guy is your franchise. He can lead you a lot of places. Of course, now Andy Dalton is gone. No real veteran leadership there. It's all on Joe Burrow. So basically day one, he'll be trotted out there, expected to turn things around for the fortunes of the Cincinnati Bengals, which we hope he will. But it's going to be a very tough deal for him early on. But he'll learn his way, and I think he's going to do well. Coming up momentarily, the voice of the Washington Redskins for so many years, Frank Herzog, our special guest. Don't touch that dial. Watching on Facebook Live, listening on Sports 1061. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Sports King on Sports 1061. Hi, this is number five, former Washington Capitals captain Rod Langway. And you are listening to Jamie King, the Sports King on Sports 1061. Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, General Manager at CMA's Colonial Honda. It's no secret that we are in uncharted waters, but that doesn't mean we should be afraid. Because now is an opportunity to do something heroic. We realize that this is the time to organize a blood drive, help our elderly neighbors with groceries, and assist local nonprofits. And that's exactly what CMA's Colonial Honda is doing. In fact, we set up a helpline to assist people in our community in any way that we can. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance, you can reach our CMA helpline at 434-220-8885. Again, our CMA helpline is 434-220-8885. And of course, if you're in need of any automotive help, we are taking extra precautions to keep our dealership clean. 
To learn more, visit cmascolonialhonda.com. We applaud you for helping one another during this time. You have inspired us to do the same. CMA's Colonial Honda, moving lives forward. The Sports King Studio line is now open. If you got a sports question, thoughts on your mind about your favorite team, we'd love to hear from you at 804-327-0888. That's 804-327-0888. And welcome back, everyone. Tuesday morning of the Sports King Show. And we welcome folks from London, England, North Carolina, Gulfport, Mississippi, Sacramento, California. And folks, you've been clamoring for this, and we were able to pull it off. And we are so excited to welcome a broadcasting legend, a guy that I always looked up to growing up because he was Washington Redskins football to all of us in so many ways, the team of Sonny, Sam, and Frank. And we are so delighted to have with us this morning the voice of the Redskins for so many years, Frank Herzog. Frank, welcome to the Sports King Show. Uh, good morning, Jamie. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. How are you down there in Carolina? I'm trying not to get wet. It's been one of those spring rains that went all night long and all day today and finally let up a little bit. It's overcast and cool, but it's a beautiful day. Can you talk about, uh, let's go way back, um, you know, for aspiring broadcasters, uh, your career before you got into, of course, the Redskins announcing. Can you talk about, was it high school, college? When did it become something where you said, hey, I could, I could really do this. This is something I really want to do. How was the backstory in terms of what you, uh, how you started in the business? I was um, a music major at Colorado State University. I was a singer. And uh, I was struggling because I didn't like the piano. I didn't want to learn to play the piano. <laughs> And I didn't know very much about music. Other than that, I was doing a hell of a good job. <laughs> wow. And, and uh, we used to walk into the student union. We used to walk down to the student union to, to play cards and stuff. And you go by the student radio station, and they had a big window. And every time I looked in there, it looked like people were in there were really having fun. So I stopped one day just to take a look. And uh, one of the guys invited me to come over and, and Try it out. Do some news. So the next thing I know, I'm working at the student radio station at Colorado State, and I'm having a ball. Uh, even to the point where I don't know how it happened, but I wound up uh, even doing some play-by-play. I did college basketball. Um, when they opened a new gymnasium, I did the junior varsity team. Um, and then um, I did the big boys the last year I was there, including their game against Texas Western, that went on to win the national championship. But um, uh, college didn't agree with me, and I wasn't doing well. So I left and joined the Air Force. And I was in Air Force training school in, of all God, San Angelo, Texas. You can't get any flatter or any hotter than San <laughs> Angelo, Texas. And I, and I got a job, part-time job at a radio station there, KGKL, on the banks of the Rio Concho. And I did the weekends. And I was a DJ. Um, in fact, the first football games I ever heard 
were Dallas Cowboy games because the station carried Cowboy games. So that's how it all started. And then I went to Vietnam. I got out of Vietnam and came back, and I got signed to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, which is just north of D.C. And I had connections through San through a job I had in San Antonio. Anyway, I got a job as a copy boy at WTOP Radio for $2 an hour. The boss looked at me and he said, why would you take this job? And I said, because my foot's in the door. And he said, I like your attitude. So I worked my way up from a $2 an hour copy boy to where I was doing after two years, I was working on the air doing overnight radio and little reporting. And I went to school there and got my degree. It's funny and that's you said where that. it all went. Then I went, then I, at WTOP, I got a job as a uh, newsman. I would anchor in the, in the studio. I would do street reporting. I was having a ball. I had majored in government at uh, American University. So my goal was to be the Capitol Kill correspondent for CBS News. That's what I wanted to do. And that's wow. what I was all geared up for. Um, then I started doing a little sports. Uh, the Redskins caught on with George Allen. And this was weird. I, I bounced all over the place, Jamie. I'm, I'm, it was, the WTOP was, at that time, a radio and TV station. So radio was on the third floor and TV was on the fifth. And on Sunday nights, they needed somebody to do the, Reds, the highlights of the Redskins game. So a guy named Brian Healy, who went on to become a producer for CBS, said, "Come on, Herzog, uh, you're going to sit on the sta- you're going to sit on this on the uh, set, and you're going to do the highlights." And I said, "I don't know anything about this." He said, "I'll tell you when to do them." And he would sit down in front of me, out of the camera, and he would point to me every time a play started, and I would read the script. <laughs> so wow. yeah, that's how professional I was. But it just kept well, going from there. Um, it's fun. It's funny when you look back at your San Angelo, Texas, on the weekend. Could you have ever thought then? Because I've been there too. You made two dollars. You said uh, I made ten dollars a game back when I covered uh, minor league baseball, and thought, "Wow, I'm making some big money." But when you did those weekends, could you have ever foreseen uh, the success you would have had all those years later? I mean, talk about humble beginnings. Oh my gosh! And, and uh, when I when I left there, I got assigned to San Antonio, Texas, and. and one of the guys there said, uh, Herzog, I like you. He said, if you if you ever need, you know, when you get out of the Air Force, if you ever need to, a break or something, get get a hold of me. I'll try to find you something. And I said, thanks a lot. I wonder what ever happened to that guy. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it was just, Jamie, it was just a, a series of coincidences. Sometimes I, feel, I felt like Forrest Gump. You know, things would just turn for you, and you had an opportunity to do something that was out of your control, or you were willing to do it. I tell uh, I tell young people now that maybe one of the keys to my success was I was willing to try things. I'd say, okay, I'll try that. And my theory was, I'll try it, and if I can do it, great. And if I can't, and if I don't like it, uh, the worst that could happen is I could go back to what I was doing before. So with that philosophy, I just kept going. Then I had a news director one day call me into his office and say, you know, we've been talking. We think you ought to do play-by-play. And being a smart ass, I said, I'll tell you what, you get a team and I'll do (laughs) play-by-play. And he said, 
I tell you what, we got the Washington Bullets. The next thing I know, I'm doing NBA basketball. I did it for three years, um, over a hundred games a year, wow. and that's that's what got uh, that's what got me going. And then um, uh, after they won the championship, I went to I got a job in tele I got a, offered a job in television. I went to television and I was there for a couple of months. And at the Christmas party, I saw the general manager at WMAL Radio that had the Redskin rights. And I said to him, look, if that job ever opens up Redskins play-by-play, I'd like to be able to talk to you about it. And he said, fine. And I'm telling you, figure this out. Three months later, the guy who has the job quits and moves to San Francisco and to live in Napa Valley and grow grapes and work for KGO television. So the job is open. And I walk in the door and interview for it, and the next thing I know, I'm sitting next to Sam Huff. And then you know the rest of the story. Boy, this is taking a long time. You ask one simple question. Hey, that's okay. Hey, hey, I had Joe Theismann on the other day, and he was supposed to come on for a half hour. He stayed an hour and a half. So I love listening. And, of course, here you are, uh, a a legend in our area, and we're going to talk more with our legendary broadcaster, Frank Herzog. Uh, Frank, Doc Emmerich, the great NBC broadcaster, was on our show, and he told me about his beginnings where he'd go up in the stands of the old AHL hockey arenas and sit up there with a tape recorder and talk into the tape recorder, and he practiced himself, and the fact that he put so much time into it, just like your humble beginnings. And I think many of the young broadcasters that will talk to me or you, they'll say, hey, how do you get there? How do you do it? But I'm telling you, man, I had humble beginnings. I didn't make it to the level you did, obviously, with what you did. But the fact that you talk about that, that's a backstory I really was looking for and uh, in terms of all the ways you came through. And it was not an easy journey, but you made it nonetheless. Well, and I think, Jamie, I think a big advantage for me was the news background. Because I, I always approached it as a news reporter. I had that, men, maybe I didn't approach it that way. Let's say I had that man, mentality in the back of my mind. So I wasn't up there a rah-rah, let's go guys, broadcaster. I tried to call it like it was happening. I tried to be fair in my observations, but at the same time, I tried to be objective. And I think that was a little different. And I think the news background really, really helped cement that. So by the time we got involved with the three of us, um, we had a pretty good game plan of or I had a pretty good game plan of what what we wanted to do. We're going to talk about Sonny Sam and Frank in a moment. I do want to ask you, when I was growing up, you, you had, of course, the, the great Glenn Brenner, of course, hysterical, uh, George Michael, uh, yourself, and, and a lot of folks on the outside always try to uh, get the competition between you guys, which, you know, it was a competition, but at the same time, what was your relationships with those guys? Because so many people wanted to try to pitch you against each other, but you guys were all diverse, different in the way you delivered. And I always looked at you as that newsman background, but at the same time, you always, uh, it was never controversy about you. You always did it with a pleasantness and you always were great to watch. And I always looked at you as like, that's a guy you'd like to sit down and just talk sports with because he's just uh, very disarming, a nice guy, and people are always drawn to you. So talk about the the big three, if you will, you guys at different stations and uh, relationships, if you had any. Well, um, thank you. That's very nice of you, Jamie. Um, ironically, when I finished the Bullets, the Bullets won the championship in 78. 
I was in, I was invited by the assistant news director at Channel 9 to come out to a party they were having at a congressional country club. And he said, we want to talk to you about coming over to TV. And I said, damn, I just want, you know, I just part of the NBA championship. And he says, I know, I know, but let's just, just listen to us. And I went over there and went to the party. And there was a guy named Jim Snyder who was, uh, oh, he was the king. He was the king of news. I mean, he was the guy. And he talked to me a while and he said, look, I got this young sportscaster coming in named Glenn Brenner. And he's an absolute stitch. He's a funny, funny man. But I need somebody to compliment him, somebody to, to go along with him. And I think you would be perfect for the job. Why don't you come, why don't you come over and, and work with Glenn? Well, when, when Jim Snyder, who I'd worked for before, said, why don't you come over? <clears throat> it was almost like an order in, in my mind. So I said, okay. So Glenn and I worked together. I was his number two guy, weekend guy for several years, three or four years. We got to be friends. George and I never became friends. Uh, George came in. He was very abrasive. Um, he had, he threw around a lot of money. He spent a lot of money. Uh, we were, you're right. We were very competitive and he took the competition to a new level. He, uh, he did some amazing things at Channel 4. He revolutionized the television sports business with his use of satellites and special feeds and all that stuff. And he came up with a formula for his sportscasts so that each day you could, you could count on one day being rodeo highlights and the next day being wrestling. And, and he, he took it all in as like he was serious about the wrestling and everything. And we all just kind of went, oh, my God. Then I got offered the job at Channel 7, and uh, Glenn said, you should take it. It's an opportunity. Take it. Go over there. Uh, and he said, listen, if, if you get tired of it, you don't like it, if they don't like you, you can always come back here. You're always welcome here. So wow. I took the job at, at 7. And uh, had a, I had a great experience there. Worked with a uh, – we, we formed – a sports department that had some very talented and creative people. We were good storytellers. In fact, we just had a Zoom meeting last week with about eight of us that worked at Channel 7 Sports. And it went for two and a half hours. God, we told stories and remembered things. <laughs> they remembered things I'd forgotten. But the thing that came back to me was how creative these people were and how much fun it was just to let them go and tell good stories. So that was the way the three, the three of us contrasted. Glenn Brenner was the funniest man I ever met in my life. I've oh my never, uh, he, uh, Jamie at the Super Bowl, after we finished our last broadcast of the week at the Super Bowl, we all sat around in the lobby of the hotel with drinks and he started telling stories and at one point, I had to get up and walk outside because I was laughing so hard, I had <laughs> abdominal cramps. I had Charlie horses. My stomach was Charlie horsing, and it hurt like hell. And I'm laughing. That's how funny he was. Well, I mean, and, uh, Glenn, yeah, we loved him. And, and it was so natural with him. His It just wasn't forced. It was just so funny. And you guys had such great chemistry there. And... And I just thought, and I'll say this, go on record, 
I don't know if Washington has ever been as privileged to have three, as you said, diverse guys, but the sports competition, you all raise each other's games, I felt, that each station to so. uh, bring the very best out in each one. And and this is a compliment to you guys. I've never seen it since in terms of the level of talent from a broadcast. Nothing against the guys of today. But you guys then did things I felt for Washington sports unprecedented, and all three of you deserve so much credit. Well, thank you. Um, uh, it, was, it was a good competition. Eventually, George and I became cordial with each other towards uh, the end of my career there. And uh, we were doing things on the road with the Redskins in the preseason stuff. So we got to know each other a little better personally. And I think that that softened a little bit. But <clears throat> the other thing to remember, <clears throat> that was at a time when really the only sports you were going to get was on the television stations in Washington. There was right. no ESPN. Right. Uh, there was nobody doing 24-hour-a-day sports. So as a result, stations spent a lot of money and a lot of manpower to support sports departments and let them do their thing. Then that all changed with ESPN and Fox Sports and all the others started jumping in. Where today, um, sportscasters are almost freelance people at TV stations. Now, you know, I don't, I haven't been to Washington in a couple of years. But I haven't heard of any dominant sportscaster up there, any guy or woman that's doing sports five days a week and getting people's attention. They just don't do the they don't emphasize it anymore. And that's the way the business has changed. You know, it's funny you said that because you're right. There's really not that person where you say, I can't wait to watch this tonight because you kind of shake them up in the bag and not knocking them. But they're good, but they just don't have that. That draw that you guys had, in my opinion, and I, of course, a little older, so obviously that's how I feel. And when we look at you with what you did with the Redskins, broadcasting games from 1979 to 2004, uh, and you look at the team of Sonny, Sam, and Frank, it's so synonymous with the Redskins and excellence. When you look at your time, and of course, sadly, uh, we know Sam's in bad health and, and Sonny's had his, his issues as well, but you guys from a magic standpoint, a defensive guy, an offensive guy, and here you are, uh, the ringmaster, making sure everything flowed, but the voice you had and the calls you had and the excitement you brought to the game, and you had those two guys, it's one of those things that uh, it's just so magical, you know, the pair of voices all in synchrony and the things you did together was so magical. Redskin fans, when they found out you were coming on, they were just so delighted uh, what are your remembrances of that great team and just historic in every level? Well, it, um, my remembrances are that it kind of fell together. Sonny had been working at CBS and had gotten an opportunity to become the number three man in the TV booth with Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire. And there was apparently an incident with, with uh, Brookshire who was not happy about the idea of another man coming into the booth. And he tossed a hissy fit. The next thing Sonny knew, he was not only out of the booth, he was out of a job at CVS, which is cruel, I think, which was terrible the way they treated him. And I think the CBS folks, you know, the, the guys, the warriors at CBS felt the same way. So suddenly Sonny had no job. He was working at Channel 9. We were doing the Joe Gibbs stuff. And Andy Ockershausen, the general manager of WMAL, said, came to Sam and I and said, how about if we add Sonny Jurgensen to the booth, put a third man in there? 
And we both looked at each other and we said, well, it'll be crowded. But Sonny knows his stuff. He's a great guy. And I think we can make it work. So that's how it started. And then I kind of realized it was my job to bring the broadcast into the 20th century. In other words, it was an old-time radio broadcast. We, nobody ever made any mention of television replays because we didn't want people to know the game was on TV. Did you know the game was on TV, Jamie? Did you have any idea? <laughs> no. Everybody, hell, everybody knew it was on TV. So I started referring to replays. They said, oh, don't do that. I said, guys, come on. Wake up. It's modern day. Replays will verify either what we said or it will show that we were wrong. And that's our job is to be objective and to tell people what the hell is going on. And I also told Sonny and Sam they'd start early on. They talked about, well, we've got to do this. And I went, wait a minute, guys. During the time I said, wait a minute, guys. All we have to do is broadcast the game. We don't have to drive down the field. We don't have to complete a pass because we don't play. And they said, oh. I said, yeah. I said, that sounds too homerish. I don't <laughs> like that. That's what the, the Redskins have to complete a pass. The Redskins have to make a stop. We have to call the game. So little things like that, and little nuances. And after a while, it's kind of funny. <laughs> the CBS people would put a monitor in the booth, in the window of our booth, every week, because they carried all the Redskin games. And I think it was the guy. I think it was the guys at CBS who took care of Sonny, who said, "You were treated badly. By God, we're going. It's no big deal. We'll put a monitor in the booth." So we had their replays every week, and as a result, we slowly evolved to the point where we were a different kind of broadcast. I said, "You know." We can get excited when the game is exciting, but we're not going to root for the Redskins. We're not going to root for the other team either. We're not going to put them down, and we're not going to we're not going to say the refs are stealing the game from you or anything like that. We're going to try to be objective. And Jamie, that wasn't something that happened in a matter of a month. It took a couple of years for all of that to sink in and develop, but slowly but surely, it worked. Boy, we were also at a, a distinct advantage because when we started broadcasting and when Joe Gibbs first came in, the Redskins weren't very good. And the CBS people were not putting their number one crews on those games. They were using their third and fourth stage crews. I'm talking about announcers. So people at home were turning on the TV and they'd hear these guys and they'd say, who the hell are these guys? I never heard of them. And then they'd say, that guy doesn't know anything about the Redskins. He's making mistakes. So slowly but surely they discovered radio and said, you know, why listen to those idiots on TV who don't know anything about our team when we can listen to Sonny and Sam and Frank? So we benefited because the Redskins were bad. And as the Redskins got better, people stayed with us. And by the time they rolled around where they were into playoff championships and stuff, uh, we were, you know, we were pretty much ensconced. That was great. That was delightful. 
We are going to talk about that, about the turning the sound down on the television, listening to Sonny Sam Frank, more about that. And we're going to talk about his acting career, folks. Yes, he's been in movies. We'll talk about that and much, much more with the legendary Frank Herzog as the Sports King rolls on Tuesday morning. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Hi, this is number 65, defensive tackle Dave Butts two-time Super Bowl champion of the Washington Redskins, and you are listening to the Sports King Show with host Jamie King on Sports 106.1. With 19 NCAA Division I sports and 84 majors, Coastal Carolina University affords student-athletes the competition and learning they crave. From FBS football to ladies volleyball, from championship baseball to ladies lacrosse, from business to theater arts, Coastal Carolina University offers a depth of learning both on the field and in the classroom. Eager ambition is a hallmark of students and faculty at Coastal Carolina University. Schedule a tour and learn more at coastal.edu. Hi, it's the Sports King, Jamie King, and I'm here to offer you truly life-changing advice. If you or someone you know suffers from foot pain, don't delay. Take immediate action and visit the podiatry centers of Dr. Paul Ross with two offices to serve you, Bethesda, Maryland, and Springfield, Virginia. I know firsthand he changed my life and totally restored my foot. He will do the same for you. That's the podiatry center of Dr. Paul Ross. For more information, go to paulrossdpm.com. That's paulrossdpm.com. You're listening to the guy that was once addicted to brake fluid. But please don't worry, he says he can stop at any time. It's the Sports King on Sports 1061. And we welcome you back on this special edition of the Sports King on a Tuesday morning. We welcome on Facebook Live former Virginia Tech uh, defensive coordinator, the outstanding Bud Foster, tuning in to listen to Frank Herzog. Boy, everybody. London, England wants to hear Frank Herzog. Sacramento wants to hear Frank. Boy, Frank, I'm telling you, see, you're good for my ratings. I thank you so much for joining us. we got to have you back, man, more and more. Thank you so much. Um, We want to go back to the story. And this is a fact, folks. Uh, Everybody of a certain age will remember this. Of course, uh, the great team of Sonny, Sam, and Frank. Of course, Frank did the Redskins games from 79 to 2004. But people, and I'm telling you, it's almost like NASCAR that have those favorite drivers. They'd almost fight you over their favorite drivers. Same thing with the broadcasting team of Sonny, Sam, and Frank. People are like, I don't care who the broadcast team is. I listen to Sonny, Sam, and Frank, and that's it. I mean, you're not going to talk me out of it. That's just the way it was. You turned down, as Frank said earlier in our last segment, the uh, uh, audio of the TV to listen to these guys. And as he said, they stayed with you. And the fact that you brought that excitement, and what I always loved was a banter between the three of you, Sonny Sam. Of course, they would get on each other. You were playing uh, to both of them, trying to keep them going. Can you tell us about the backstory of you guys in terms of your camaraderie and how it was so seamless? Um, I was a little concerned at the very beginning about Sonny and Sam getting along until I found out that when Vince Lombardi came in to coach the Redskins, Sam came out of retirement to play linebacker and coach linebackers. And Lombardi looked at the two of them and said, I want you two to room together on the road. I want to put the middle linebacker with the starting quarterback. And Sonny said, why? And he said, (laughs) because by the time you get done talking about girls and cars, you'll start talking about football. And I think it's important that the quarterback understand what the linebackers thinking and vice versa. So as a result, they they roomed together on the road, 
And then Sonny lived just down south of where Sam did in, in Virginia. So it got to the point where he would drive on game day. He would drive up, pick up Sam, and they would drive the game together. And that tradition kept going after they retired and when they were doing the Redskins broadcast. So they were really great friends. And that helped immensely. Sonny and I worked together in, on Channel 9 when Joe Gibbs came to town, and we immediately hit it off there. They asked me to help Sonny with some of his reporting skills, and I did. And we became friendly. And then with Sam, Sam, uh, Sam's like a big old lovely, big old friendly dog. You know, if you, if you keep him, he'll growl at you every once in a while, but you, you just pet him and talk to him nice. He'll be good with you. Uh, so I, there, Sam was no trouble at all. So the three of us automatically hit it off. And it it was amazing. Jamie, I think maybe if we sat down to do the first game and I'm going, oh, God, how long is this going to take? It took one quarter. After the first quarter, the three of us felt like we'd been doing it together for five years. Wow. Because it just, the rhythm, there is, there's a musicality about a broadcast. There's a rhythm. There's a pacing. And once we got our rhythm and the pacing down, then it all worked. And I began to understand the body language of Sonny and the body language of Sam when they had something important to say and when they didn't, when they wanted to hold off. And as a result, uh, after a few months, it was like we'd been together for, for years. When I look at your career and the fact that you guys were so synonymous with the Redskins' excellence, as you said, when you first started, not so good, but then things turned great, and you guys had so much fun during the great heydays with Joe Gibbs and all the wins and so forth. Looking back at that special time and, you know, Sonny called the offense and Sam would say, I need a defensive play here, and then you're keeping things going. The excitement of those games was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And then the famous call, touchdown Washington Redskins, which is so beloved in our area, will always be. How did that come about? And it just became that phrase you always uh, went to and you said so well. And so many fans, when they heard that from you, it was like music to our ears. Can you talk about the genesis of that? I came early on. Um, I called individual players for a touchdown, and then I began to realize, I think by being around the team, began to realize that a touchdown was the product of 11 guys working together, not one guy throwing the ball and the other guy catching it, or one guy running around the end and scoring. I mean, that guy doesn't get around the end if he doesn't have blocks from the five guys up front. And that receiver doesn't get open if the other two receivers on the other side aren't occupying their defenders and making them worry so much that he gets open. So it's a team. It was a team thing. And I think that that kind of hit early on. And I said, you know, when they score, it's a team score. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start calling it. I had a guy call me one time and he said, I don't know if you realize it or not, but every time the Redskins score a touchdown, you say touchdown Washington Redskins. I said, yeah. He said, well, you say that too much. And I said, well, (laughs) tell Joe Gibbs to start kicking field goals. I won't say it. (laughs) No, you could could never say it too much. And now that's going to get me to my next question. I remember uh, very vividly sitting with Mark Rippon on the way to a – 
a uh, situation where you got a key to our local city here. And uh, we were talking in the back of the vehicle on the way to the ceremony. I said, man, you know what you've done? I said, this 1991 Super Bowl, you have put us in position. This team is going to be so special. And you've set us on a path that after the other two Super Bowls, we're just going to keep doing this. It's going to be an ongoing thing. Frank, it's 2020. And maybe I said the wrong thing in 1991. But as you sit back in North Carolina and you watch a game now, do you feel any different? Now, we got Ron Rivera now. We're hoping for the best. But would you have ever thought after that great, uh, experience you had with with uh, Sonny and Sam in terms of what you went through that you'd have to wait this long to even see a glimpse of some of the former greatness that we all missed out on. And I and Jamie, I don't think we're done waiting. I think Ron Rivera. Can Thanks, come Frank. In and, Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I think he can come in and start to rebuild, but that's going to be a three or four. That's going to be a two or three year project, and. I was talking with a former player last week who called me out of the blue and he said, Frank, I don't think, I don't think we'll ever see another era like that. Uh, in that, that 11 years, I, he said, I don't think that'll ever be matched. And I think he's right. I wow. think there was, there was something magical about all that. All the pieces fell into place. And by all the pieces, I mean, from general manager to scouts, to coaches, to conditioning, the weight training guy, the film guys, and then all the players all fell into the place where they all worked together like a machine. Uh, I think it was pretty special. You were voted to the D.C. Sports Hall of Fame, rightfully so. Fans have clamored for you to be in the ring of honor at FedEx. I mean, when you look at your career and the fact you're beloved to this day, when you sit back in North Carolina, think of your career, what uh, means the most to you in terms of all the things you did and the excellence you brought to all the listeners? Well, that's a toughie. It's not something I've ever thought about. Um, and I'll think about that. Okay. Um, and I'll give we'll you, you back an answer, for another show. I won't, I won't give it to you now. Let me think about that. And let's okay. talk about something else. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, we. <laughs> When you look at uh, Joe Gibbs in those special times, the Super Bowls, is there one, of course, you had the Riggins call and all the great plays and all the Super Bowls. Is there one play or one call or one game that stands out to you in terms of, man, that game in particular is one that I circle and say, man, from my historic career and all the great things and all the memories I gave Skins fans, that game there was one that I'll never forget. Was there one in particular? Uh, If there's one play – you're not going to believe this. I don't know what game it was. I know it was played at RFK Stadium. And I know it was a Mark Murphy interception. And I called it before he caught the ball. And after he caught the ball and returned the interception up the field, got tackled, I'm thinking, damn, Frank, (laughs) you're a little quick on that. But I... (laughs) It was one of those moments where the ball is in the air and it's almost like your adrenaline slows everything down. And I could see where Murphy was. I can see where the ball was. And I knew he was going to intercept it. And I, I have never done, I had never done that again in my entire career. That's never happened again. So that's a play I remember out of, for just for the reason of, damn, Frank, what, what were you? What were you doing? What happened? 
Where, <laughs> what wow. zone were you in, and why can't you get into it more often? <laughs> as far as <laughs> as far as games go, um, I think maybe the NFC Championship game against the Cowboys, that first one, where Dexter Manley uh, sacked Hogaboom and Daryl Grant got the football and went into the end zone for the winning score. Um, I think because of the buildup for that game and how excited fans were and what that stadium was like. You see, if you ask me this about the Bullets in their championship year, I would say the same game, the championship game in the Eastern Conference against the Philadelphia 76ers at the Capitol Center because there were 19,000 people. The expectations were so high. The nerves were so high. You could cut it with a knife. And uh, the pressure was unbelievable. And I think those two games, even though they're basketball and football, those two games match each other in their intensity and the excitement and, and what a thrill it was to be there. What a thrill it's been so far this morning with Frank Herzog, the legendary broadcaster formerly of the Washington Redskins. He called games from 1979 to 2004. And by the way, folks, this guy is an actor as well. He's been in uh, Step Up, <laughs> National Treasure, Book of Secrets, State of Play. Now, you've dabbled in acting. Can we see Frank Herzog uh, coming in anything else on the acting side, or is that uh, out of no, uh, the possibility? He's hung him up. That's it. I had my fun. <laughs> you know, it's, and again, Jamie, here's an it's, it's a product of what happened. Um, I got fired by the Redskins in 2004. I got fired by the radio station. I want make this. Let's make this clear. Dan Snyder did not fire me. It was the radio station, and it was CBS that fired me um, to save money. And to let Larry Michaels come in, who was a natural, to come in and, and replace me. But I got fired, and there was a firestorm over that, and the fans were upset. And I think the fans' response even made it a bigger deal to me because they were so gracious. And then a couple of months later, Channel 9 fired me. They said it was because the 11 o'clock ratings were bad. <laughs> I just sat there I'm thinking, well, I'm going to get a severance check from these jerks. I ain't going to say a word, but I'm going, 11 o'clock ratings? You people suck. Your ratings are awful anyway without me. The reason you're firing me is I'm 60 years old, and I make too much money, and I just got fired by the Redskins. So I, you don't have the moniker of that. But, you know, there I am. There I am. I've been fired by the two principal jobs that I have. And my ego at the time was pretty well battered. I'm I'm feeling like I'm no good. That's what these people are telling me. I'm no good. And I was really down. And bless my wife's heart, she said, I said, what am I going to do? She said, you're going to do whatever you want to do. Make up a list. So I sat down and make up a list. I made up a list of all the things that I had wanted to do and never had time. Things like narrate film documentaries, do commercials for radio, uh, some other things. So then I started taking people who did those jobs out to lunch to talk to them about their jobs. And in each case, I said, no, I don't want to do that. Film narration, no, that's too complicated. That's a whole different world. And commercials, the guy said, I wear a beeper 24 hours a day. 
it's not unusual to get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they asked me to get into a studio to record a spot. And I went, no, BS. I ain't putting up with that. <laughs> so, and the other thing was be a movie extra. So I don't remember who I called. I guess I called a casting director and said, how do I do this? And they said, well, there's a casting call for usually for movies. You find out about it here. You show up with a picture of yourself and a resume, and they take a look at you, and if they want you to be an extra, you be an extra. So that's what I did. I went downtown for the first casting call and um, stood in the line, and they looked at me, and they said, okay, fine, you're up. It was a Michael Douglas film about a Secret Service agent who's having an affair with a first lady. Can't remember the name of it. The The Sentinel or something? And I played a businessman walking down the street. And it was absolutely fascinating. I learned more about movie making and uh, as an amateur photographer, how they light things and everything. And it just kind of steamrolled from there. Every time I turn around, there seemed to be another opportunity to go do extra stuff. And that's what I did. And then the uh, step up thing, casting director said, "Why why don't you audition for this judge's job? And I went, why? She said, well, you can do it. So I went in and auditioned. And I got the job. And I looked at her and I said, what the hell am I doing? She said, you're going to be fine. Um, And then I did the the, uh, Marilyn Monroe line, happy birthday, Mr. President, on National (laughs) Treasure Books, Book of Secrets. And uh, so it just kind of steamrolled from there. I wound up in a bunch of them. Me and Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe starred in uh, a a movie. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think. I don't think they know it. It's like, <laughs> I don't think they realize it, but we were, we were all together in a movie and we did pretty well. Yeah. You, you guys did collectively very well. Just like Sonny Sam and, and Frank. Yeah. You and Leo, know, you and Leo. I don't think Crow helped us very much, but I think me and Leo, we carried that damn thing. You and Leo did carry it. Hey, Frank, yeah. I've got to ask you, Got to, we're up against a break. Please stay just a couple more minutes because I want to find out what you're doing now. And uh, fans are just sure. clamoring on Facebook Live. They really are loving this. Frank Herzog, the legendary play-by-play announcer, formerly of the Redskins. Uh, we're going to close it out with him in just a minute. You're listening to Sports King on Sports 1061. Hi, this is two-time Super Bowl champion cornerback Perry Williams from the New York Football Giants. And you'll listen to my great friend, Jamie King, the Sports King, on Sports 1061. Hi, I'm Tim Cosgrove, General Manager at CMA's Colonial Honda. It's no secret that we are in uncharted waters, but that doesn't mean we should be afraid because now is an opportunity to do something heroic. We realize that this is the time to organize a blood drive, help our elderly neighbors with groceries, and assist local nonprofits. And that's exactly what CMA's Colonial Honda is doing. In fact, we set up a helpline to assist people in our community in any way that we can. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance, you can reach our CMA helpline at 434-220-8885. Again, our CMA helpline is 434-220-8885. And of course, if you're in need of any automotive help, we are taking extra precautions to keep our dealership clean. To learn more, visit cmascolonialhonda.com. We applaud you for helping one another during this time. You have inspired us to do the same. CMA's Colonial Honda, moving lives forward. Welcome back. You're listening to a man who is cooler than the other side of the pillow. It's the Sports King on Sports 1061. 
Welcome back. Tuesday morning edition. And I'll tell you what, what a special day it's been for all of us. And fans on Facebook Live have been commenting left and right about Frank Herzog. They love him, and we always will. I'm telling you, Frank, here's the thing. When we found out you were no longer going to be uh, on television and without the skins, we kind of felt like we lost a best friend because you have been such a staple in our lives for so long. And I'm glad you cleared it up earlier. You said Dan Snyder did not fire you as a station deal. Many people had a lot of vitriol against Snyder, and I remember there was a lot of backlash because they were like, how could you do this to a guy that's meant so much to us? And I know the community and the fans uh, do you have a message for Redskin fans listening and watching uh, on Facebook Live as far as uh, the fact they love you so much, they miss you, they've been wondering how you've been doing, and the fact that you're no longer uh, calling games. But they were really, and I'm telling you, pissed when you were gone because they wanted you to be here forever. Yep, people don't like change. And, uh, you know, I'm going to answer the, the question I put off before about the key to what I tried to do. Early on in my career, my boss, Jim Snyder, pulled me aside and said, look, don't try to be something you're not. They'll spot it in a New York minute. And I honestly believe that's what I've tried to do the entire career. Uh, and, I, and I hope I think it's worked. As far as Snyder and the Redskins go and those those folks, in a, in a way, hindsight is twenty twenty. It weren't wound up being a blessing. Because within a year, the, the rights to the Redskins broadcast went back to the Redskins, not the radio station. Larry Michael evolved into a full-time employee with the Redskins, and he's responsible for doing the games and all the television shows and all the promotions. I talked to the Carolina Panthers down here. When their play-by-play job opened up, I thought that would be great. I could go over and do the Panthers game, you know. And the guy said, Frank, we'd love to have you, but you got to understand the business has changed, and this is not a job where we bring a play-by-play man in, do the game, and then go home. This is a full-time job. You'd have to do the pep rallies. You'd have to do the promotional appearances. You'd have to do all the interviews, the TV shows. And he says, I don't think at your age. And being retired, you'd want to do that. I said, you're absolutely right. Thank you. So it evolved. The whole situation in in the National Football League has evolved to this, I think, to where all the teams now are responsible for the broadcasts and all the people who do the broadcasts work for the teams. And I never would have been able to do that. Yeah, that's interesting because, Larry, I know Larry, and he put so much time in there uh, full time. And I was going to ask you that. In our final couple minutes with Frank Herzog, I asked Mark Rippon, I said, Mark, do you still have one more drive left in you? I was going to ask you the same thing in terms of broadcasting. If the right situation came along, would you get back in the booth and call games, or have you basically resigned yourself uh, away from it now? Uh, I'll pretty much resign myself away. Every once in a while, you know, I'll see a game and go. I, I think, uh, Jimmy, you know, you know what it is? I don't want to do it. I want to be there. I, you know, right. I want to be at the game. That's, that's the thing. That's the excitement. I think for players, when you hear players talk about the thing that they miss is, their, is the locker room, the other players. And I think it's the same thing uh, for me. It's just I, I'd love to be in the booth. I'd like to be a part of that whole thing. That's a, you know, that's a special moment. But that's not going to happen anymore, so okay, fine. 
In our final minute, uh, Frank, how do you want the fans of Redskins to remember your time with uh, the Redskins covering the games with Sonny, Sam, and Frank? How would you like them to remember your legacy as far as a broadcaster? I want them to smile and laugh and, and say, you know what, didn't we have fun? Because that's the key. We had fun. The fans and us and the players. There was, Listen, if you hold a football game in a stadium like they're talking about now, with no fans, it ain't going to be any good. The fans make the game. They make it exciting. And I think if I want people to remember is what a good time we had together. Well, I'll tell you what, we've had a great time together with you this morning, and we wish you and your wife the best of health and success down there in Carolina. We want you to come back, and we'd love to have you back when football season comes back. And once again, wish you the very best. We can't thank you enough. The fans have loved it this morning, and you are a true institution here in Washington, and we do miss you. Thanks, Jamie. I may belong in an institution, but I appreciate the comment. (laughs) Frank, thanks so much. You've been listening to the legendary broadcaster, Frank Herzog of the Washington Redskins. Man, what a great run down memory lane we had with him. We thank him so much for joining us. And, of course, my outstanding producer, Ben Maitland. And uh, don't forget, tomorrow, Mike Bragg, our special guest number four, coming up a little later in the week. It's going to be Jason Bishop on Thursday with Roman Gabriel. So the hits keep coming here on Sports 106.1. Don't forget, Big Al starts it off. Sports phone, uh, 8 to 10. We follow him at 10 to 12. And up next is Jim Rome. For Ben Maitland, I'm the Sports King, Jamie King. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.